The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Um, it's been a good week for Cubs fans, right? Yeah, a lot of Cubs fans. When they, when they got that third out, my, uh, my mind just went to replay of the late Harry Carey going, Cubs win, Cubs win, Cubs win. It, it was a fun game to watch. Um, my, my boys and I, before the uh, game at dinner, we said, okay, everybody predictions. Who's going to win game seven of the World Series? And we went around the table and we came to my eight-year-old and he said, Cubs will win extra innings by one. So we may have a profit, I don't know, but uh, anyway, enough with the news. Let's, uh, let's hear what God has to say. God has been speaking to us from the book of Exodus, so let's turn to Exodus. We'll be in chapter 13, and what we've been looking at is the God who rescues, and it's God who redeems. And here's where we've been. God's people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they are in slavery to the most powerful nation on earth, the Egyptians. And they cry out to God, God, redeem us. God, break us out of slavery. And they cry out to God, and God raises up a deliverer named Moses through a set of miraculous events, and God sends Moses to come and confront Pharaoh through a series of ten plagues. Now, these ten plagues, they are judgments upon the Egyptians' theology, upon the Egyptians' God, and we see their theologies destroyed, and we see the economy of the Egyptians, it's decimated. Their livestock are killed. Their crops are destroyed. In fact, when the Israelites are leaving, the Egyptians say, here, Take our gold. Take, take our silver. Take the clothes off our back. Just get out of here. Don't come back. And last week, Kenan showed us that final plague. That plague that is so powerful to look at. The death of the firstborn. And what we saw was God said the death angel's coming. These plagues have been increasing in severity. The death angel's coming. And unless you are covered by the blood of the lamb, you will die. The firstborn will die. And the Israelites, they take the lamb into their house, something that seems so foolish, but the foolishness of man is often the wisdom of God. And they take this lamb and they paint the blood over the door, and their firstborn are redeemed. And Kenan showed us last week how from the book of Genesis all the way through Scripture, all the way to Revelation, the message is the same. We are saved by the blood of the lamb. We are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That's what redeems us. And we see Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment. How do we escape the judgment? It's by trusting in the blood of the Lamb to redeem us. That's always been the message. And it's no mere circumstance. It's the wise providential hand of God that placed Jesus' death on Passover. He's the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. Some 1,500 years after the book of Exodus, Jesus fulfills the picture that that lamb was meant to show. Now, today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 13. And what we're going to be looking at, God's people, the Israelites, have been redeemed and they're leaving the land. And we're going to look at how do the redeemed live. And we're going to see three events today. And in each of these events, we're going to see that God has something that he is teaching his people, his redeemed people, about how they are to live. And these three things speak to us today. So the first thing we're going to see, first event we're going to see is unleavened bread. It's a festival that God sets up for his people to remember. 
Secondly, we're going to see the consecration of the firstborn. And third, we're going to see that God leads his people by a cloud and by a fire. So let's start looking in uh, Exodus chapter 13. We're starting in verse 3. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right here when it says remember, this is a command. They are commanded to remember the redeemed live by remembering. We're to be a people who remembers. And God's going to spell out the importance of remembering. So they are to remember, but it's not just remember in this sense of like, oh, I recall it to mind, it's here. It's to be remembering in such a way that your entire life is governed and controlled by what you're remembering. That's how they were to remember. And he says, remember what? When you came out of Egypt, when you, listen to this, when you came out of the house of slavery. Now, Egypt is often synonymous with the world. Worldly living, worldly thinking, the ways of the world. And the house of slavery, the Egyptians, they would have large walled cities, large walled slave cities. And in there they would have these large houses that they would put all the slaves in. And the idea for the Israelites, land of Egypt was known as the house of slavery for them. And this is our story. You see, in this story it's us. We were enslaved to the ways of the world, the thinking of the world, the goals of the world. The values, the dreams, the hopes. We were totally worldly, controlled by that, yet God brings us out of the house of slavery. Look at this. It says, here's how they came out. Still midway through verse 3. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. That phrase, strong hand, is used a few times. It's used here in verse 9 and in verse 16. We're going to see that brought you out. It's used in verse 3, 4, 6, 9, and 16. God continually wants them to know this. You were not brought out by Moses' strategy. You were not brought out by Moses' plan or his wisdom. You weren't brought out by Moses' courage or the people's courage. What brought you out alone was the strong hand of God. He's the one who brought you out. And for us, we're not brought out of the house of slavery to this world by our own brilliance. We're not brought out by our own wisdom. We're not brought out by our own good works. We're not brought out by our own religious practice. The only thing that brings us out of the house of slavery to sin is the strong hand of God displayed in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only thing that will bring us out. And this is what he's reminding them of, of who they are. He wants them to remember this. Remember, you've been brought out by the strong hand of God. The redeemed live remembering. Look at what uh, in verses, the end of verse 3 says, No leaven shall be eaten. And then in verses 4 through 7, he spells out some things about this feast of unleavened bread. Now, what God did, he helped his people remember. Because remembering is vital. He established seven biblical holidays, or holy days if you will. Four of these holidays are in the spring, three are in the fall. The four in the spring all point us forward to Jesus' first coming that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John. The three in the fall point us forward to Jesus' second coming that we're waiting for him, that we see talked about in Revelation. But the very first biblical holiday was Passover because God said, you've got to know that you're only redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The second is unleavened bread. 
When they left uh, Egypt, their bread did not have time to rise. What they do is they take their dough and they would put some leaven in it. And that leaven would sour the dough. It would eventually permeate. It takes time. They would leave it there for a while and it would permeate the dough. And then when you cooked it, the bread would swell. But if the, bread did not, if the dough did not have time for the leaven to permeate, bread wouldn't swell. It would look like this. This is called unleavened bread. The Hebrew for that is matzah. So when they left, this is the type of bread they have. And God says, I want you to remember, when you left Egypt, this is the bread you had. It didn't have time to rise. Now, why is that significant? Now, I said all of these point us to Jesus. All of the festivals that God established for the Jewish people point to Jesus Christ. Now, in Scripture, leaven, which causes that dough to sour and rise, is a picture of sin. And what does sin do to us? Sin sours us. It causes us to begin to think more of ourselves. Sin causes us to become puffed up. You take, a, you take a bread that looks like this. These weigh the same. Yet this one is all puffed up full of itself. That's what leaven does to us. Sin causes us to swell up and think more of ourselves. And Jesus came and he said what? I'm the bread of life. Jesus is pictured here in this unleavened bread. Sinless. And Jesus that he was betrayed, would take this bread and break it and say, this is my body, broken for you. So this was to point them forward to Jesus coming and to remind them that God has called us to be holy. That God has called us to be a holy people. In verse 8, look at what he tells them again. He says, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. He's telling them that you are to tell your children at this festival of unleavened bread, why do we eat this bread for seven days every year? Why do we do this and it doesn't have any leaven and it's all flat? We remember that when we left Egypt, we didn't have time for the dough to become permeated by the leaven. And we remember that God has called us to be a people that are holy. We're not to live in slavery to sin. It's a picture for them. God wants them to remember Remember is an important thing for us. As followers of Christ, we are called, the redeemed, we're called to remember. One of the things I'll do in my position often is uh, weddings. I'll officiate a wedding. And uh, weddings typically, the day before the wedding, there's usually a rehearsal. And after the rehearsal is a rehearsal dinner. And the rehearsal dinner has family that are close to the bride, close to the groom. It has friends there. And almost every rehearsal, this seems to be the trend now, is you have a video and the video will show the groom first. It'll play music, sad music, fun music. And it'll show him from the time he was born all the way till he got older. Show him grow up. Then it'll show the bride and it'll show her grow up. And then it'll have the videos of them together. And in that room is all these people who love the bride and groom, who have been instrumental in their life. You can feel the emotion as they remember I mean, it's tangible. You can feel it. And I love to catch a glimpse of the bride's parents or the groom's parents. You can see the countenance on their face. It's this mixture of both gladness. Their children are getting married. They're excited for their children. Yet, there's a sadness as they remember. Those days are gone. They're past. They're not coming back. They're over. And it's this mixture of sadness and gladness. But they're remembering. It's not just a remembering up here. It's a remembering that they feel. You get that? They feel it. 
They taste it. They experience it. That's the type of remembering that God is calling his people to do. Eat the bread. Taste it. Remember that I delivered you by the blood of the lamb. Remember that you'll be holy. He calls us to experience it, to feel it. When we started as a church, just a few months before we launched, we were talking like, hey, how do we want to do communion? And how often do we want to do it? Do we want to do it quarterly? Or maybe we do it once a month? Or maybe we do it weekly? And we quickly landed on this consensus that, man, we, we want to celebrate communion weekly. Why is that? Because, well, look at what Jesus says. He says it in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. It says, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, communion, it's not to be something we just come every week and we go through the motions. It's to be a time that we remember and I love gathering with my boys, even as they're, you know, halfway scattered and they're halfway paying attention, just to gather them in and say, hey, let's for a minute. Let's remember who we are. We're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was spilled for us. We're not slaves to Egypt anymore. We're not slaves to this world anymore. We've been bought with a price by Jesus. It's a remembrance, a remembrance of who we are, that we're to be right with others. God calls the redeemed to remember, to live in light of that, to continually go back to that and remember who you are. Second thing we see in our passage today, going back to verse 2, and then we see it in verses 11 through 16, it says, consecrate to me the firstborn. Consecrate to me. God says, the firstborn, consecrate to him. That word consecrate carries the idea of sacrifice. That they are to sacrifice the firstborn. The firstborn of Egypt died, and now God says, I bought the firstborn of Israel with the blood of the Lamb, and now I want you to give them back to me. And that's what God still tells us to do. Hey, I bought you by the blood of the Lamb, and now I want you to consecrate yourself and give yourself back to me. And at the end of verse 2, God says that they are mine. Here's the way the redeemed live. We literally live knowing that our all belongs to God. And I didn't just say all our stuff, all our things. That belongs to God. But all we are, who we are, it all belongs to God. You see, Kenan talked about this last week, that that idea of the firstborn, it was your everything in the ancient world. It was all your hopes and dreams. They didn't have retirement plans. Your oldest son would get a double portion in order to take care of the family as they got older. The oldest son was where your hopes, your dreams, everything was in him. So to think of sacrificing your oldest was to go, I'm giving it all to God. Everything I am, everything I have, it's his. And that's what God calls us to do. Now, in Scripture, we see this pictured throughout, this idea of sacrificing. In Genesis 22, Kenan talked about this last week, Abraham takes his son Isaac, and as he's about to sacrifice Isaac... God points to a ram, a male lamb caught in the thicket, and he sacrifices the lamb in place of Isaac. Why? Because throughout Scripture, front to back, we must be covered by the blood of the lamb. That's always what Scripture is telling us. And here, in that Genesis 22, we get the first use of a word. And there's a principle in Scripture. When you're studying Scripture, if you want to sort of know how to use a word throughout, you look, when was it first used? What was the context? And you take that lens and walk it on through Scripture. The first time the word worship is used, 
is when Abraham says, we're going to worship and we'll be back. Abraham's about to sacrifice his son and that's the first mention of worship. You see, worship biblically, oftentimes in our American culture, our American church culture, we've equated worship to singing three or four songs. That could be a part of it. But that is so far short of the biblical idea. The biblical idea of worship is this. You sacrifice your all to God. It's sacrifice. Worship always involves sacrifice. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is our spiritual worship? It's to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Everything we are, our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our goals, we lay them all down before God and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. But there's a problem with a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice likes to get off the altar and try to go back to Egypt. That's why we continually come back and lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. I got an email this week from a friend of mine named Wade Akins. Wade is a uh, career missionary. I got to go with a team from Harvest last, or this past January. We went to Tanzania, trained a group of pastors. A lot of these pastors, the way they make a living is they're bivocational. So they're in a very poor country, so they'll do different, different things. One of them named Michael was a roofer. He put the roof on the building where we met. He put the roof on the dental clinic where we held a dental clinic. Well, Michael recently past few months fell off the roof and he is now paralyzed from the waist down so he can't work on the roof anymore he's got a wife and three children and he is dirt poor and his father came to Michael and he said son if you'll come back to Islam if you will convert back to Islam I'll take care of you your wife and your three children forever I've got you covered And Michael looked at his dad and said, I can't go back. I can't go back to the false gods of Egypt. I can't go back to slavery. I will lay my life on the altar. I'll lay my family's life on the altar. Trusting Christ. And this guy literally laid it all on the altar. He didn't know how things were going to work out. He might have starved to death. He didn't know. But he knew that he was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And there was nothing greater than that. Nothing sweeter than that. And he joyfully was willing to lay his life down. Well, the body of Christ there rallied around Michael. And they helped him build a house. And in that house, he's got a store there. And he sells goods out of his house now. And he's able to support his family. So God provided and met this guy's needs. But he was willing to live knowing that his all belongs to God. That's how the redeemed live. Knowing our all belongs to God and laying our lives down as a sacrifice. Third thing we're going to see today is this pillar of, uh, of cloud and fire. And what we're going to see, the third thing we're going to see about how the redeemed live. We've seen one, they live remembering. Second, the redeemed live. We live knowing our all belongs to God. And third, we live following God in the light that he gives. Let me show you in verse 17. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led them around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Notice how God leads his people. The Philistines, they're this mighty, powerful nation. 
They've got iron. They're terrifying. And God says, they're not ready for that. I'm going to lead them away from the Philistines. And he leads them to the desert toward the Red Sea. Now, there's about a three-week period between them leaving Egypt and the Red Sea crossing. And during that time, they're in the desert. And God's people are shaped and molded in the desert seasons of life. Abraham and, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah were in the desert. Isaac and Rebekah were in the desert. Jacob and Leah and Rachel were in the desert. David was in the desert. John the Baptist spent time in the desert. Jesus had his desert season. Moses had been in the desert and is about to go back and take God's people into the desert for 40 years. It's in the desert. It's in those dry times. Those times where we wonder, hey, am I going to have enough water to make it? The heat is beating down on us. We know those seasons. We've all been in them in some way, shape, or form. Many of you are in them now. It's in those that we learn who God is. We learn who we are. We're reminded we can trust Him. He will lead us. He will guide us. He will direct us. We're secure in Him. Look, look at what it says on down in verse uh, 21. It says, The Lord went before them day by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. God, uh, in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit gives them a visible manifestation of God's leading. A cloud and a fire. And that cloud will protect them at times. It will protect them from the Egyptians who can't see through it. But you know the thing about being led by a cloud? You can see the cloud, but you can't see what's on the other side of it. You just have to trust and follow. You can see the light at night, but you can't see beyond it. You don't know where it's taken. You just have to trust and follow and walk in the light that you have been given. One of the most common questions I'll get is something to this effect of, hey, I'm trying to figure out if I should maybe move overseas and be a missionary or if God's called me to go to another city or if God wants me to take this job or that job or marry this person. It's all these questions that really center around, what is God's will for me? What does God want me to do? And before I start to try to unpack that, really the question is, first, are you walking in the light he has given you? You see, the Bible doesn't tell us which person to marry or if we should marry. The Bible doesn't tell us what car to drive or whether we should buy a home or whether we should go on vacation here or go on vacation at all or whether we should get this cell phone plan or that cell phone plan or whether we should buy Tropicana orange juice or some other brand. It just doesn't speak to all these things. There's a thousand things the Bible doesn't speak to, but the Bible does give us light. Scripture says, your word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet. So God is leading us, he's directing us, he's showing us, and he shows us by his word. Let me just show you some things that are in the word. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says, give thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So here's the question, what is God's will for you? Give thanks in all circumstances, even in those desert seasons, even in those tough times. You can still give thanks. Why? Because you remember, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And no matter what I face, no matter how difficult it is, I can rejoice and give thanks because that's who I am. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Let me ask, are you, are you a thankful person? 
Would that characterize you as a person who is thankful? Let me tell you, that's God's will, that we are thankful people. Look at another one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion and lust of the Gentiles who do not know God. So here's God's will for you, that you are sanctified, that you are holy, that you're set apart. We did a series a couple of summers ago on sanctification. Uh, if you want to listen more about sanctification, get that series. God's will for you is to be sanctified. Let's look at another one in 1 Peter 2, 15 and 17. It says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. God's will for you is that you do good. And then he spells out some of how we do that. How do we do that? We love the brotherhood. We love other followers of Christ. We honor everyone. We honor even the emperor. That's who he says we're to be. That's how we're to live. This is God's will for you. That you live free. That you don't live in bondage and slavery to sin. God wants us to live free how he's created us to. Let's look one other place about God's will. Uh, took us there earlier. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, and this time we're going to look at verse 2 as well. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what's God's will? You lay your body down, your life, your all. God's will is that you lay your all down as a living sacrifice and that you renew your mind continually on the things of God. That's why we need these to remember and go back. Who am I? I'm a redeemed child. I've been set free from Egypt. I no longer live by the standards of Egypt. I walk differently. I live differently. He has redeemed me. See, what's necessary is that we have this renewed mind that we're so shaped and governed by the will of God that is revealed in Scripture that we are able to see and assess things that aren't revealed in Scripture and instead of trying to do some mysterious thing to hear God's voice, that our mind is so set and renewed by the good news that we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that we've laid our life down, that we're living by the revealed will of God that we can discern, that God will reveal that he'll lead us. I think if we live this way, if we walk in the light that God has shown us, maybe not so much focus on what he hasn't shown us, but walk in the things that he has shown us, as we live this way, we're going to look back at our life and we're going to see a series of divine circumstances, divine coincidences where God has moved us and taken us here and there and where he's been faithful to lead us. God is faithful to lead us in those desert seasons. Living in those hard times. One of the things that, uh, one of the traditions that we have at the Winstead house is Tuesday night cleanup. Every Tuesday night, we clean up. Y'all are welcome to come. You don't have to announce, you just show up. Come on, you can help clean. Now, uh, my boys, 
often meet Tuesday night cleanup with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, quite literally. Uh, they're masters of procrastination. They're masters of blaming. He did this. That's his mess, not mine. And they figured out every way they can to try to get out of this. But I have one. I have one child that when he hears it's cleanup night, it's the most joyous thing he's ever occurred. He doesn't even know his days of the week. He's only two and a half. But when he hears it's cleanup night, he runs through the house literally singing the cleanup song. And he goes to his brothers and he tells them, it's cleanup night. And he is excited and as he cleans, it's sort of one of those deals with one step forward, two steps back. You know, it's sort of not real progress, but passion, excitement, energy. He's got it. And you know why he's so excited? Because he knows. When cleanup night is over, he's going to joyfully clean up because he knows what's coming. He's going to get candy. Sorry, Dr. JB. He can fix that. He's getting candy and he can't wait to get his candy. He tells his brothers, it's cleanup night. We're going to get candy. And he's excited. He'll endure. He'll make it through it. And you know, that's how a two-year-old is. They'll endure joyfully because of the perks to come. But us who follow Christ, oh, we know where we're headed, but we know where we are, who we are. That we are secure by the blood of the Lamb. And it's in remembering that that we can endure and walk even through the difficult times with joy because we know that we've been bought by the blood of the Lamb and that is enough, that is sufficient. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ can walk us through those seasons that are difficult. We can live thankfully because we know that, because we're laying our lives down. That's how we're to live. We don't live focused on the perks. We live focused on Jesus Christ is enough. He's sufficient. He's all we need. The redeemed live remembering. I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. His body was broken for me. I, I'm, I'm no longer a slave to Egypt, to this world. That's how we live. The redeemed live knowing our all belongs to God. I'm not trying to build my own kingdom. None of this is mine. Everything I am, who I am, it all belongs to God. And I lay my life down as a living sacrifice. And the redeemed live walking in the light that God has shown us. God has given us enough light to walk. Well, we're about to celebrate communion. And communion, Jesus said, it's a time to remember. To remember what? His body and his blood broken for you. To remember who? Who we are. That, hey, God has called us to live reconciled to our brothers and sisters, so maybe we need to uh, apologize or seek reconciliation something. To remember who we are, that we're not slaves to Egypt anymore, but we've been set free by the blood of the Lamb, and that is good news. So as we come to take communion, I pray it wouldn't just be something you go through the motions of like we can so easily do. I pray as you come to take that you'll taste it, you'll feel it, you'll experience it as you remember that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and that is good news. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that um, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb that is Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of Passover. And Lord, as redeemed people, you allow us to remember who we are, that we're not slaves to Egypt anymore. We are set free by the blood of the Lamb. And God, that you lead us 
through your word, you guide and direct us. And if we walk in the light that you have shown us, God, you are faithful to take us right where you want us to be because you know us, you made us, you created us. Lord, may we be a joyful, thankful people because we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, now as we come to take communion, we celebrate. We say thanks that we are free through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.